Our sermon text is John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And if you're able to do so, I'll invite you to stand for the reading of God's word this morning. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Give ear to the word of God. It says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The sense of reading of God's word, you may be seated. Well, you might know that, uh, if you know your Bibles well enough, you might know that the birth narrative of Christ uh, is actually not found in all four Gospels. It's only found in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. We preached through the Gospel of Mark uh, a while back, and the book of Mark does not have a birth narrative. The account of Christ's birth, it starts off with John the Baptist and, and, and Jesus Christ's baptism and his beginning of his earthly ministry, and the Gospel of John also does not contain a birth narrative, but it doesn't mean that John's Gospel doesn't deal with the meaning of the birth of Christ. You know, this morning we're looking at a text in John, John's Gospel that you probably don't naturally associate with Christmas, but you certainly can. You know, the opening chapter here of the Gospel of John, uh, it really does deal with, in some ways with the same thing we think of at Christmas time, the Gospel of Matthew and Luke. Those Gospels, what do they deal with in their opening accounts? They deal with the historical accounts of the birth of Christ. Well, John deals with the same subject, but he does so primarily, you could say, in a theological sense, or even a didactic or teaching way. What, what John does, he doesn't give you the account of the birth. What John does is give us, explains for us, the significance or meaning of that birth that took place all those years ago at the incarnation of Christ. And so... No less a theologian than Benjamin Warfield uh, stated that the Apostle John is teaching about the person of Christ, that is, his deity, his true deity, his true humanity, and the unity of his person is, quote, more didactic in form than anything we find in the other writings of the New Testament. In other words, the, the Apostle John, in some ways, has more to teach us about the meaning of the incarnation and the person of Christ than any of the other writers of the New Testament. And he says... Uh, also there, that the great depository of his teaching on the subject of Christ's coming 
is found in the text we're looking at this morning. So John says more than that than what he says here elsewhere in his writings in the New Testament. But the, the main place, the great depository, Warfield calls it, about the person of Christ, his true deity and true humanity in one person, is found in the text we're looking at here in John's Gospel, in the prologue of John's Gospel this morning. So we're going to look at, Lord willing, at least three things in our text, maybe more that tell us about the meaning, the significance of Christ's incarnation at Christmas. First, we're going to see that Christmas is about the incarnation of the Son of God. It's about the incarnation of the Son of God. Second, it's about the coming of the grace of God. The grace of God. And third, Christmas is about the revealing of God to sinners that we might be saved and know him rightly through faith in Christ. So the first thing it's about, Christmas is about the Son of God incarnate. The Son of God becoming man. You know, it's often called, John 1 is called sometimes the prologue of the Gospel of John. Or you might think of it as a foreword if you've read you make a habit of reading a lot of books sometimes they'll have a foreword before the uh, the substance of the book has gotten into and what is what does a prologue do what does a foreword to a book do a foreword or a prologue kind of lets you know what's coming it sets the tone for everything else that's about to come and so in this case in john's prologue although he doesn't call it that john kind of tells us the primary reason why he wrote the gospel of john uh, why he wrote the book, and he tells us the primary emphasis and theme that you're going to find as you read through the whole book of John. So you could say the Gospel of John, in some ways, is summarized for us here in this text in John chapter 1. The rest of the book of John, the rest of the Gospel of John, you might say is, it could be understood as an unfolding of what he says here in these 18 verses about Christ. And what's the first thing that John tells us, literally, here in John chapter 1. The first thing that John wants us to know and be clear about is who Jesus is. He wants to tell us and make us understand who Jesus really is. And John begins in this gospel by asserting in the strongest terms possible that Jesus is the Son of God. He kind of, you know, he kind of throws us right into the deep end, so to speak, in telling us who Jesus is. Warfield again writes, he says, The deity of our Lord is made by John the point of departure in his delineation of his divine life in the world, while the synoptics take their start from the birth of Jesus or the opening of his public ministry. So Matthew and Luke, where do they start? The birth of Christ, the actual historical account. Where does Mark start? The beginning of Jesus' public ministry when John the Baptist baptized him and Jesus went forth preaching uh, the gospel of the kingdom of God. But where does John start in distinction from them? With the deity of Christ. The very first thing John wants to make sure that we have straight is that Jesus is the Son of God incarnate. There is, there is no room left here, much less the other gospels as well, for, for mere sentiment. This is not a sentimental story that, that, that John or the other gospel writers are telling us. John wants us, wants you and I to know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God incarnate. Now, why, you ever wonder this, why does John call Jesus the Word? Why does he refer to Jesus in such a strange way, at least to our ears, in calling him uh, the Word? You know, John actually speaks of Christ by that title three times in the first verse. He doesn't say in the beginning was Jesus. He says in the beginning was the Word, 
The word was with God, and the word, three times, was God. He does it three times, and again in verse 14, for good measure, when he says the word became flesh. Now, we should be sure and, and be clear on the fact that it's, it's definitely Jesus he has in mind that he's referring to here when he talks about the word. And we know that because of the rest of what John says throughout the, the text, especially in verses 14 through 18. There in verses 14 to 18, he talks about the word becoming flesh. Well, who could that be? And he calls him the only son from the father in verse 14, mentioning that John the Baptist bore witness to him. Well, who did John the Baptist come bearing witness to? Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then in verse 17, he mentions him by name in case we didn't get the hint. He says that the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So the word in John 1 is Jesus Christ plainly. Now, why does he call him the word? Why does John refer to Jesus as the word? It's a title that he uses in his gospel as well as in his epistles. 1 John 1, 1 says that Jesus call, he calls Jesus the word of life. The word of life, John also calls him the word of God in Revelation 19, verse 13. So this is something John does throughout his writings in the New Testament. He calls Jesus the word. Now, some, some mistakenly, I believe, think that they said that, Jesus, that John rather was kind of borrowing his terms from pagan Greek philosophy or religion. Starting around the 6th century B.C., Greek philosophers began to speak of the logos, the same Greek word that, that John uses here that we translate as word. Uh, as their, their, their understanding of the logos was some kind of an impersonal controlling power or principle in the universe. Uh, they weren't certainly thinking of, of God. Uh, the creator and sustainer of all things. But the Apostle John is not using pagan philosophical terms to help us understand who Jesus is. But what does John mean by it? How, what, why does John call him the word? The key, I think, is not to look at ancient pagan philosophy, but simply to look at how, G, how John himself uses it. What does John, how does John use the word? He tells us what it means, I think, if we just look at how John uses it. Look at the very first verse of John 1, the first sentence of John 1, 1. What does he say? How does he start? In the beginning. In the beginning was the word. Um, I don't think it would take much if you've been a believer for any length of time, if you've read your Bible at all, especially the book of Genesis, that it should ring a lot of bells. And that, that's not an accident. I don't think John just happened coincidentally to write that phrase, in the beginning, it's the very same, same phrase you find in the opening of the, of the book of Genesis. The, whole, the opening verse of all of scripture is in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the fact that John goes into detail in our passage about creation should tell us that it was not a coincidence that he brings that up in that phrase. So, so the, word, the word did not come into existence at some point. The word has always been, he was there when. In the beginning, there was never a time when this word was not. There was never a time when the Son of God was not. Next, John says that the word was with God. He was with God in the beginning. He, just, he was not a created being. He has always been, even before time, from all eternity. So he's telling us, whoever this word is, he was there in the very beginning. He was there with God at creation. He was with God at creation, and then... What else does he say? He was not only with God in verse 1. He says the word was God. 
And then what does he tell us in verses 2 and 3? He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And so in the very first verse of the Gospel of John, you have a statement of the eternality of the Son of God, calling him the Word. That He, he was there in the beginning. We have a, a, a hint, a statement of the personhood of the Son of God, implying the Trinity, that there, he was with God, and then he was and is in continuing state of being God. So you have a, a hint, at, at the very least, of the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, that we have one God forever in three persons. And who is that? When he gets down to the last part of our passage, he tells us he's talking about Jesus Christ. So how did God create? You know the book of Genesis, what does it say over and over on each day of creation? God said, and God said, let there be light. And what happened? There was light. And then he calls Jesus, calls the Son of God here, the Word of God. And that he was the one by whom and through whom God the Father created all things. He spoke everything into existence, and John tells us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was and is the Word. So you could say that, that the Son of God is hidden in plain sight in Genesis chapter 1. Every time God speaks and things come into existence, you have a hint of the Son of God in addition to the Spirit of God hovering over the waters, as Genesis says. All things were made through him, not, not all other things. I think I mentioned this last week as well. The Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, they would have you believe that uh, they would actually change the wording to all other things, implying that they believe, as they do wrongly, that Jesus was a created being, that he was not the Son of God from all eternity. As if that were not clear enough, John says, without him was not anything made that was made. So the word of God here, the Lord Jesus Christ, is eternal. He was eternally with God, and the word was eternally God himself, the creator Jesus is every bit the creator as much as God the Father was. Nothing was made without the Son of God, without the Word. And so who is Jesus Christ? Who is, what is the one thing John wants us to grasp from the outset of his gospel here in the first chapter? He wants us to know, wants you and I to know and believe without any uncertainty that Jesus is God. He is the Son of God incarnate. The Westminster Larger Catechism puts it this way. It says, the Son of God is, quote, the same in substance, equal in power and glory as God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. The same in substance, equal in power and glory. The Nicene Creed in the original Latin, it talked about homoousios. In other words, one substance. That's where they get that phrase from. He's not sort of God, almost God. One step down, he is equal in power and glory to the Father and the Holy Spirit. Uh, we, have, we worship one God in three persons, and Jesus Christ is in no way less divine than God the Father is. That is the teaching, the plain teaching and repeated witness of Holy Scripture about the Son of God, about Jesus Christ. And so, in some ways, you could say that, that teaching us and showing us that Jesus Christ is God himself is one of the primary purposes of John's gospel. He shows us that here in the prologue. And he shows it through the miracles that he kind of structures his gospel around. You know, if you read through the gospel of John, 
you will see at different points throughout the gospel these miracles, and it calls them signs. It's like signs and wonders. What does a sign do? A sign points to something else. The miracles that Jesus did in the Gospel of John, including things like raising Lazarus from the dead, were miracles meant to, to authenticate and prove to the people who he really was. And who does John say Jesus is? God himself, God the Son. And so he shows us, not just in the prologue, but at the very end of the book in John chapter 20, right towards the end of the book in John 20, verses 30 and 31, he kind of comes full circle. John writes, he gives us what we call a purpose statement for the Gospel of John. If you ever want to know why did John write the Gospel of John, he tells you right in black and white in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. There he says this, Now Jesus did many other signs, there's that word, did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. These, the ones he did include, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the purpose of him writing this book, it's not an account of all of Jesus' miracles, is it? He says that he did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life, eternal life in his name. John isn't just writing to give us historical uh, facts, although he does give us historical facts. He's, he's not just trying to uh, assuage our, um, our trivial desires of wanting to know what happened. He tells us what happened, but he also tells us why it happened and what it means. And the whole point is that we might believe and believe in Christ, believe that Jesus was the long-awaited Christ, and that he is on top of that the Son of God incarnate. So if you read the Gospel of John and you don't comprehend or accept that Jesus is God, you've missed the point of the book. You've missed, in large measure, the point of what John was writing and worse than that, if you don't believe in him in order to have life in his name, you've missed the point of the book of John and also the point of the entire Bible in many ways. It's one thing, and it's an important thing, to have a right view of who Jesus is. There's no dispensing with that. But a right view of Jesus is has to follow up with believing on Jesus for eternal life. That, that's the whole point, that the Son of God became man, took on flesh, and died for our salvation that we might believe on him for eternal life is the point. So Christmas is about the Son of God. It's about the incarnation of the Son of God for our salvation. That's what Christmas is about, what the gospel accounts are about. And what does it mean that he became incarnate? That's what verse 14 says when it says that the word did what? The word became, became flesh, the Son of God, the infinite, eternal, and unchangeable Son of God became a man and took on flesh. Now, Jesus is still truly God. His divinity has not changed in the slightest. Otherwise, he would no longer be God. That cannot happen. He has the same divine nature that he has always had from all eternity. But now and for the rest of eternity, he is also truly man, having a, human, a true human nature as well. The Lord Jesus Christ is both truly God and truly man, having two distinct natures in one person forever. Now, how, did, how is that possible? How did Jesus Christ, being the Son of God, become man? The larger catechism, question 37, says this. It says, Christ, 
The Son of God became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary, of her substance and born of her, and yet without sin. That's the, the Reader's Digest version of the Incarnation and what and how it came to be. Now, look again at John chapter 1. What does John say about Jesus Christ as the Word? Verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt, you, you, you could actually translate that, although it would sound funny in English, you could translate that as tabernacled or lived in a tent. It's the same kind of imagery used back in the book of Exodus in Exodus 33 and elsewhere of the Old Testament tabernacle. Remember before the building of the temple, where did the people worship and do their sacrifices? It was a portable temple. They weren't in the promised land yet. God told them to make this, it was a glorified tent in many ways where they had their sacrificial system set up. Uh, so I think John is sort of pointing back to the tabernacle in the Old Testament here to teach us that Jesus, uh, just like the tabernacle and the temple, is the place, so to speak, where God meets with man and where man is reconciled, sinful man is reconciled to God. That's the imagery that John uses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to describe Jesus, the Word, and the Son of God incarnate. So he's not just the Son of God who's always been and the one through whom God the Father created all things. He's also the one that the Old Testament tent and tabernacle pointed forward to. Jesus is the place where God meets with man and dwells among us. He is our Emmanuel, as Isaiah says, which is God with us. Well, the second thing that Christmas is about, according to John's prologue, is Christmas is about the grace of God. Christmas is about the grace of God and the incarnation of Christ. It's about the fullness of the grace of God at the coming of Christ. No less than four times in our text, in, in verses 1 through 18, John mentions grace in connection with the incarnation of Christ, the Son of God. Look at verse 14. He says that the only Son of the Father is what? Full of grace and truth. In verse 16, he says that in Jesus Christ we have all received what? Grace upon grace. Grace on top of grace. Verse 17, he says that the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, what, what exactly is John saying here about Moses and the law of Moses in regard to the good news of Jesus Christ? Is he saying that, that the law and the gospel, the law of Moses and the gospel of Christ are somehow contrary to one another or that they are opposed to each other? No. Is he saying, is, is John saying there was no grace and no truth in the law of Moses? God forbid. That is not what he was saying at all. We have to be careful to be clear about what John is saying as well as about what he's not saying. He's certainly not saying there was no truth in the law of Moses. The law of Moses primarily being Genesis through Deuteronomy. He certainly is not saying there was no grace in those books. J.C. Ryle, the great 19th century Anglican preacher, writes this. Uh, no doubt there was much of grace and truth under the law of Moses. But the whole of God's grace and the whole truth about redemption were never known until Jesus came into the world and died for sinners. In other words, the picture was finally complete. The whole picture was finally drawn up for us to see in the coming of Christ, his death, and resurrection. So the Apostle John is not contrasting the law and the gospel as if they were somehow in conflict with each other. What he's doing is he's showing in a pretty dramatic way 
how they differ in degree. They differ not in substance or in nature, but in degree. The good news of Jesus Christ is not contrary to or against the law of Moses. What it does is it surpasses it. It exceeds it. That's what the, the hymn that we just sang earlier in the service, Silent Night, talks about when we sing of at the birth of Christ being the dawn of redeeming grace. There's so much grace and truth in the coming of Christ, it's as if everything that came before was utterly lacking of it. John says that from Jesus' fullness, verse 16, we have all received, those of us who believe in Christ, we have all received grace upon grace. You picture it almost like piling grace on top of each other, if that were possible. But in verse 16, the, the word there for upon is a Greek word that usually means in the place of. Replacing one thing with another, it, it doesn't make for the smoothest or best readable English to say grace in the place of grace, but that's what John is saying. It's like grace upon grace, grace in the place of grace. That would be an accurate rendering of verse 16. So John is not saying there was no grace and truth in the law of Moses. Think about what's in the law of Moses, the first five books of your Bible. There was certainly grace and truth present in the law of Moses. Think about all the ways that Jesus Christ was promised, foretold, and foreshadowed in the law of Moses. You think of the, the first promise in Genesis 3.15 of the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. You think of the Passover during the Exodus, that the lamb that was, uh, that was sacrificed, the blood put on the doorposts of the houses to save the people, the firstborn children that were in it. Uh, think of the deliverance of Israel from slavery in the land of Egypt. Think of the types and shadows of the tabernacle that we just mentioned a little while ago and John alludes to in verse 14. Think about the temple, the Levitical priesthood, the sacrifices that pointed forward to the true Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's grace and that's truth. But when Jesus came, it's grace upon or in the place of grace. The grace is raised to a whole new level in some ways. So it's as if we knew nothing of grace and truth under the law of Moses. Salvation, as I hope you know, salvation has always been by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There is not one person in the history of humanity that will ever be saved apart from that. Everyone who will be in heaven on that last day will have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. In the Old Testament, how did that work? They looked forward to the Christ who was to come. And they looked at the signs that God gave, the, the sacrifices and those kinds of things, to point forward to his coming and his work on the cross. We now in our day, thankfully, we look back on the coming of Christ and his cross. But that's, that's what it's about. We have grace upon grace, grace in the place of grace. Abraham, the New Testament tells us in the book of Romans, Abraham was justified by faith, not by works. Romans 4 Galatians 3, 6. But in Jesus Christ, we have grace upon grace. It's, it's like the phrase abounding grace to sinners like you and me. That's what Christmas is ultimately about. Christmas, the third thing it's about, it's about the revelation of God. It's about the Son of God incarnate. It's about the grace of God being poured out. And it's also about the revelation of God in Jesus Christ, that we might know him rightly. Jesus is the ultimate way that God reveals himself and makes himself known to us. In other words, Christmas is about knowing God, and that means it's about the salvation of sinners. 
What does John 17:3 say? It says, this is eternal life. And what does he say? This is eternal life that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Knowing God through Christ is the definition and substance of eternal life. That's why it doesn't wait till heaven to start. You have eternal life now if you're a believer in Christ. You aren't enjoying it as fully as you will one day, but it's your present possession because you know God. You will know God more fully in heaven than you do now, but you know him if you're in Christ rightly even now. Verse 18, John says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. There he tells you again in no uncertain terms who Jesus is. The only God who is at the Father's side. Talking again about the Trinity. The NASB puts it this way, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. So we can only know God the Father through faith in Jesus Christ. And that means, uh, that is what means when Jesus says in John 14, 6, he says, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And then what does he say after that? No one comes to the Father except through me. No one. He is the only way of approaching God the Father. There's no knowing God apart from knowing and believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. So Jesus and Jesus alone is the, the one who shows or explains God to us. He is the one who shows, shows us and tells us what God is like. If you want to know God, you must know him by faith in Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 through 17 says this, He, that's Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him, here it is again, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's talking about Jesus there. All things were created through him and for him. If he is not God, that's blasphemy. To say that all, the, all of creation is meant to be for Christ. And it's in him that all things hold together or consist. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. Only God is that, and that is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The writer of the book of Hebrews says something similar about Jesus being the ultimate revelation of God to sinners. He is God's final word to us. Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3, it says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Then he says, But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. There it is again. The scripture is pounding this into our heads. The Lord Jesus Christ is the creator of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, that's Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's God. That's God. Jesus is God. There's no other way to put it. 
He's not almost God. He's not sort of God. He's not small, small G God like the Jehovah's Witnesses like to say. I, I've said this before. There's no, there's no such thing as almost God. There's no such thing. It's the silliest thing you've ever heard to say that someone is kind of God or almost God because God is infinite. There's no such thing as almost infinite. You either are or you aren't. Anything that's not infinite compared to the infinite is like a speck. It's not even worth being compared. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Remember, remember Moses came down the mountain for meeting with God and his face was shining so brightly that it terrified the people and he had to put a veil over his face. Jesus is more than that. Jesus isn't just kind of the, the leftover afterglow of meeting on the mountain with God. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Where, when you want to see the glory of God, where do you look? Not physically, of course, but you look to Jesus Christ. He is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact imprint of his nature. The exact imprint. Not a type, not almost, not tells you a few things. The exact imprint of his nature. And then as if we don't get the hint, he upholds, Jesus does, upholds the universe by the word of his power. The same word that created the heavens and the earth, the same word also upholds the universe even now. But Jesus Christ did not become a man just to show us what God is like. He would, that wouldn't do us any, if all Jesus did was come to explain things, that wouldn't do us any good. That would save nobody. He became a man so that he could live the life of perfect obedience to the will of the Father that we have failed to live. He came to die on the cross in order to pay, to pay the price the full price for our sins. That's the whole point of the incarnation. Without that, there was no point to it. He came to die to save sinners like you and me. There is grace upon grace, John tells us, to be found in Jesus Christ that sinners like you and me might be reconciled to God and saved and have eternal life through faith in him. And that's, that's what Christmas is all about. Amen.